Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, Mike Warren, and drumroll, David French is back to join us this week because uh, we have some things to talk about. So we have the Hunter Biden plea deal hearing that was supposed to be not particularly newsworthy and turned out to be a, a hot mess train crash. So we'll talk about that. We obviously have to talk about the Ron DeSantis GOP field heading into 2024 and maybe some UFOs, which is uh, a new addition to this podcast, but nevertheless was really dominating some of the news yesterday. And everyone wants to know, what does David French think? Are the little green men popping up tomorrow? The answer is yes, they're coming. Right, let's dive in. I'll do a little table setting on the, the Hunter Biden thing just to back everyone up for a second. So Hunter Biden was charged by the Department of Justice with two misdemeanor tax evasion charges, which he had agreed to plead guilty to in exchange for probation. He was also charged with a uh, felony gun possession because at the time he purchased the gun, he was a user of illegal substances. For that, he had agreed to a pre-trial diversion program, which would mean that if he completed basically two years of probation in advance, um, that it's wiped clean. It's as if the charges didn't happen. You don't have a felony on your record. And that's important to a lot of people because if you're a felon, um, you can't serve on a jury. You can't own a gun. There's all sorts of rights that you lose. And so to not be a convicted felon is generally speaking, a good thing. Uh, there was a lot of hand wringing on the right over whether this was a sweetheart deal. Um, you know, and, and David, you and I talked about this a little, and I'll just give sort of my rough overview, which is it depends how you look at it. Most people are never charged with tax evasion for doing what Hunter Biden did. And definitely most people who are drug users aren't charged with illegal possession of a gun. But so in, the, in that sense, he's actually treated uh, less favorably. But if you are charged with tax evasion or illegal possession of a gun, yeah, no, most people charged with illegal possession of a gun don't get pretrial diversion from the feds. Like, why are you even doing this? The whole point of the resources that the Department of Justice puts into getting illegal guns off the street frankly, is to throw the book at them, get the guns, and yeah, give people felony records so that they can't own a gun again. If you couldn't own it legally the first time, why are we giving you sort of second chances to legally continue to own a gun? So again, sort of depends on how you approach uh, the question of whether it was a, quote, sweetheart deal. But regardless, we enter this week's hearing. Um, you know, David, you and I weren't even really going to pay attention to it. It was going to be a, a very routine the judge 
reads the relevant portions of the deal, you know, do you understand this? Are you being advised by counsel? Um, you know, are you mentally competent to enter into this plea deal? Yes, 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 your honor. Bye-bye. The end. That is not what happened at this. <laughs> so in summary, at the end of the day, Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to the charges, meaning we're nowhere, we're not moving yet. Now, a lot of people are like, aha, it's going to trial. No, it's not. They're just going to take 30 days and they're going to talk about the plea deal and try to get on the same page. Um, and I expect we'll end up exactly where we were this week, but just next month. However, there's there we learned some interesting things. We had not seen the plea deal before. Now we have. Um, and the plea deal on the tax evasion charges basically was interacting with the pretrial diversion deal. Now, again, we don't need to get too far into the weeds here, but when you enter into a plea deal, the court is enforcing that because you are pleading guilty to a crime. That's how the court's involved. It's, you basically just skip the trial. But in pretrial diversion, that's actually usually just a deal between the government and the defendant. You don't really need a judge to be involved in that. But here, the pretrial diversion agreement between the government and the defendant referenced and incorporated the plea deal. And it said that they agreed not to charge him for any facts referenced in the plea deal. And the plea deal, of course, walked through all sorts of facts, um, facts about foreign government, business, things like that. So the judge first said, so do you understand uh, that the government is not going to charge you with anything related to this? And he's like, yeah. And the government's like, wait, no. And they're like, okay, why don't you guys go discuss this? So they did, and they came back. And she's like, great. Okay, let's try this again. So if the government tried to charge you with, for instance, failing to register as a foreign agent, you would think this covers that deal? Yes, they can't charge me with that. Government, wait, no. <laughs> uh, now, eventually they came back and had worked that out. The Biden team said that they now understood it the way the government understood it. But at that point, I think they'd really lost the judge's trust that there was a mutual meeting of the minds, what the judge's role was going to be in enforcing this down the road. So nevertheless, uh, uh, she continued this for 30 days and wants both sides to write her long homework assignments on their understandings of the judge's role. David, I'm coming to you. Is there anything I missed that was legally relevant to you? No, I think that, you know, the, the Reader's Digest version would be to say this plea deal, which seemed to be at least the way it had been publicly portrayed as a plea deal relating to the tax and gun charges, was actually through the back door, apparently a plea deal for related to prosecution under FARA for the Foreign Agent Registration Act. In other words, it would cover some of this foreign activity as well. So how broad was this thing? was the real question. And Sarah, it was really remarkable. We were actually uh, recording our podcast when the first reports that the plea deal was coming apart started to filter across Twitter. And then it was, no, the plea deal is back together again. And then it was, no, it's actually been blown apart. And it really was over the breadth, the issue. How, what was the deal actually? And the judge, to the judge's credit, was saying, Look, let's get it all out there. What is this thing really? And when it turned out to be, oh, 
wait, is this broader than tax and gun charges? Is when everything started to fall apart. So I think the judge, the judge did her job here. I mean, the judge did her job here, which was to pull, fully tease it all out, bring it all out in the open and see what we were actually dealing with. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, Sarah, I think of all of the people involved in this, Hunter Biden is in the worst position because he did have a deal that the previous deal, it was exactly, I had the exact thoughts you had. Weight, whether this met the qualification of sweetheart depended on the lens you're viewing it in. Does Do people normally get prosecuted for this? No. So in that sense, not sweetheart. If you're prosecuted, is this the deal you get? No, in that sense, sweetheart. So how are you squinting at this was a big issue. But when you add in the Farah stuff, the sweetness of it, you could almost smell the sugar. Can you smell sugar? You could but, almost smell the sugar. <laughs> but David, there's two possibilities here. Uh, and and the, the possibilities are what's being bandied about, you know, online and, and among sort of the pundit class. Either the Department of Justice was sort of trying to conspire to hide this very large immunity agreement that they were giving Hunter Biden under the guise of not giving him an immunity agreement. Or... Hunter Biden. Well, or DOJ was dumb. And they did not realize what the Hunter Biden team had snuck into the yes. pretrial diversion agreement. <laughs> and there's a timing issue here and that my understanding is the pretrial diversion agreement was agreed to first. And I, I do come back to that old, I'm going to get the saying a little bit wrong, but <laughs> never assume malice where incompetence will explain it. Yeah. I'm inclined to think that this was not some grand conspiracy here where DOJ and the Biden team were on the same page and we're trying to pull a fast one by everyone else, including the judge. My reason for that is that it would be one thing to go in and assume the judge wasn't going to ask you the question. And then when she does ask you the question, y'all aren't on the same page to answer it. Then you get to have a private meeting off the record and get your story straight. And they came back and still didn't have their story straight, which to me now we're in more of the incompetence territory. Yeah, I mean, a point in your favor on, so one a point against that would be, really, Sarah, on the Hunter Biden deal, they're going to be that bad? That would be, you know, one rebuttal to you. But on the other hand, if you're talking about accounts from the courtroom, from the courtroom, it says that they're stating on the record that the other investigations were ongoing and he was susceptible to prosecution. And then Hunter's lawyers are like, whoa, what are you talking about? So why are you telling the judge on the record that Hunter is still susceptible to prosecution if the deal is clearly on its face, renders him not susceptible to prosecution? Let me give you my explanation for why, even though it's the Hunter Biden thing. In fact, it's why I am now more convinced of it, because uh, the Department of Justice didn't want the political fallout from having to deal with this case themselves. So they basically cut off the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware and let them float as a little island on their own to do this prosecution. Normally, if you had a deal of this sort of public scrutiny magnitude complication, it would run up through sort of senior staff at the Department of Justice, Main Justice, the Criminal Division. You'd have a lot of really smart, experienced lawyers reading this plea deal. It seems quite possible to me that DOJ, main justice, as we call it, was like, no, no, please don't tell us anything about this. Don't include us. We don't want to know. Yeah. I mean, it's possible, but 
it's possible. Can I ask a can I ask a clar- clarifying question? Yeah, for sure. Isn't it also the case that if there's if there was this sweetheart deal that was sort of snuck in there, the, the ultimate reason that this wouldn't have been a conspiracy is because we were going to find out eventually, right? I mean, this wasn't going to remain a a secret forever, right? We were going to see if if he was not going to be if they were not going to be able to pursue these additional charges. We would see him not prosecuted, but we wouldn't necessarily have known why. So it would have been possible for for that part of the deal to remain secret forever? Yeah. Oh. Okay, well then I think there, there's... <laughs> then, I th- then let me assume the, the, the position of Republicans who are very skeptical about this. Um, so I want to move to the Republicans who are very skeptical about this because the complaints are contradictory at times, Steve, and I want you to unwrap them for us. Okay. Initially, they're mad that Hunter Biden gets this sweetheart plea deal. The initial plea deal at all, right? The pretrial diversion on the gun charges, the misdemeanor tax evasion. All right. Then... Which doesn't, just to be clear, doesn't include potentially this, this other Farah immunity. That's right. I mean, what happens in the immediate aftermath of that, by the way, is that Hunter Biden's lawyers come out and say, this ends the investigations into Hunter Biden. And the U.S. Attorney's Office says, no, it doesn't. Right away. Yes. R- right away. So, I mean, literally for a month, we've known that that there was something off in what the agreement was. It was I remember it was hard for us to report on it at the time because you had these statements, these clarifying statements that said the investigations are ongoing. And then you had other people who were party to the agreement who were saying, no, the investigations are not ongoing. <laughs> For a little background, Declan Garvey, who edits our morning dispatch, came to me with this question. And I was like, yeah, Declan, you found the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, so what's the answer? And I was like, no, Declan, there is no answer. <laughs> the guy who would know is the one running the investigation, the U.S. attorney who says that it's ongoing. But the people who actually agreed to the agreement are the ones saying that it's over. So I don't know, man. OK, so. After that, when then the U.S. attorney said the investigation was ongoing, interestingly enough, there were Republicans who were upset about that. On the one hand, they wanted Hunter Biden charged with his sort of foreign business dealings, the foreign agent registration problem, stuff like that. But they didn't believe that the Department of Justice would bring those charges. And by saying the investigation was ongoing, they thought the Department of Justice was protecting Hunter Biden from having to testify before Congress. Okay. So now fast forward then to this week's hearing and you end up in a little bit of the same place. They're like, oh my God, see, there was this secret conspiracy blanket immunity agreement. How dare DOJ do this to protect Hunter Biden? But also, why wasn't there a blanket immunity agreement so that he could testify before Republicans in Congress? And if you're having trouble following that, you're following it just fine. Yeah, I think the (laughs) the easiest way to understand that is that Republicans want the issue. So if you start there and they want to be at the center of it, right? They want to be, they want to be leading these investigations. They want to be asking these questions. I think to a certain extent, I mean, you know, this is, there are different groups of Republicans who are looking at this in different ways. But if you're looking at for the most political Republicans, the people who have been repeatedly putting out information that either turns out later to be untrue or wildly exaggerated or, um, you know, a, a part of the truth that doesn't tell the whole story. Those Republicans want the issue. They want to keep talking about this. This is their, you know, this is their main argument. They want to, to be able to make those kinds of wild accusations. 
and having spun up, you know, some conspiracies that I think are are crazy and outlandish, uh, they want to continue to to pursue those, right? It, you don't want if you if you've publicly put forward crazy conspiracies, you don't necessarily want the information that knocks those down, that puts those to bed. Having said that, I mean, there are some real questions here. I mean, this some of this stuff really smells. I don't know if it smells like sugar, but it really smells. Um, it's it, if you if you look at the behavior, take a take a big picture back and, and pull back the camera even further than just um, the charges that were being discussed in in this deal. We know that Hunter Biden was engaged in tremendously shady behavior. This is corruption. And Republicans are right to say that it's corruption. Just the stuff that we know that even Biden defenders will admit to is awful. It's shady. He he repeatedly and aggressively used his father's position to try to make money, to try to make a, a bunch of money. Um, there are other claims, there are other reports, there's a report in Business Insider about um, the money that Hunter Biden is now making from his art. I would put art in, in scare quotes, but I guess we can all have different definitions of what, what art is. Um, this is gross. It's really gross. And, and Republicans are right to ask these questions. Steve, can I just ask you a side question? So when I left the Department of Justice, I was not allowed to do any work with or talking to the Department of Justice for two years, standard for anyone leaving government. Why don't we have a rule about people's people uh, elected or executive branch officials or their families getting money from foreign governments for some amount of cooling off period uh, during certainly while they're in office, JFC, but after leaving office as well, like we do for any lobbying, any work with the agency that you left? Yeah, or, or forever. I mean, look, look at the, the kinds of reporting that we've seen on Jared Kushner's sweetheart business deals and what's happened in the aftermath of the Trump administration. I mean, I think this is, this is true for everybody. And it's, it's one of the areas where if we had some clarity on um, the legal situation, it, everybody could agree to it. Um, at least in theory. I think right now, you know, you have Republicans who want this issue. They want to keep making the case. They want to be the stars of the, the Hunter Biden investigation. <laughs> Mike, I want to talk a little bit more about the politics of this, sort of the electoral politics of this, because, uh, you know, a lot of focus on the electoral impact of legal deals has been on the Trump side. But here we have uh, Hunter Biden potentially like this dragging out longer than you'd think. And just to clarify a little here, um, because I can, I can see David judging me with his law eyes, right? The argument is that if the investigation is ongoing, um, that Hunter Biden won't testify in front of Congress because he'll simply invoke his fifth amendment right against self-incrimination. So if there was some sort of immunity deal, um, he could not invoke his fifth amendment right against self-incrimination. Now, Fun fact, um, you can't just sort of not show up because you're afraid of uh, self-incriminating. You would have to sit there for each question. So if they could ask questions specifically enough, I think those congressional Republicans um, are right. But for instance, this deal could never cover a state prosecution. So Hunter Biden can always say, well, 
you can't ask me about my drug use because a state could prosecute me for that. So I'm invoking my Fifth Amendment right. So it's not quite as like if the investigation is ongoing, he can't testify. He can. You can ask him all sorts of things that don't have criminal uh, liability. Or that if the investigation were over and he had huge blanket immunity from the feds, that somehow he'd have to spill his guts to Congress. Also not true. But what do you think of the sort of electoral side of this? Look, I mean, it's Republicans. Steve is right. Republicans want to own this issue. They want to be on TV. They would love to be uh, seen, you know, jabbing their fingers toward Hunter Biden sitting at a... uh, uh, sitting at a table uh, and have him say, I plead the fifth or, 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 but they or could whatever. do that right now. They could. Um, but it's so much more fun to have it looming, you know, and say, and say, look at our hands are tied. We can't do that. I mean, there, there is such sort of, it, it is playing out like so much bad acting, uh, frankly, on both sides has been, that has been going on for the past six years, um, which is, and I was thinking about this as, as, as I'm contemplating, everything that happened yesterday with the Hunter Biden uh, uh, plea deal going awry, which is you have Republicans who uh, rightly smell something, right? Something doesn't smell right. Something doesn't seem right. Uh, and and yet they can't help themselves uh, to sort of go to uh, the most extreme or to the most conspiratorial explanation. I mean, it is, it is a lot like uh, what, Republicans were doing during the Clinton years um, when it was so much more fun to talk about Vince Foster uh, than to talk about sort of the actual like low level like skeeviness going on with the Clintons. Um, so, so you have some of that and then you have, you have it's Democrats, but it's re- what it really is, is like institutions. Uh, and, and in this case, uh, sort of the justice department. I mean, my perception of this, and I think the perception that a lot of voters might take is that, the Justice Department is sort of trying to, they have a politically explosive case, right? They have something that that it goes awry uh, and it blows up in their face. Um, and so they're trying to sort of overmanage it uh, and get a little too cute by half and try to uh, figure out a way to massage it in a way that, uh, you know, you know, takes the political edge off. And what they end up doing is looking like, like fools looking incompetent uh, and looking to Republicans, like it's a conspiracy. And so everybody is sort of repeating this. I mean, you could, you could say that they repeated this, uh, this, this was the case with the Russia investigation. Uh, you could say it was the case with COVID even um, where sort of institutions overcorrect uh, because they, they, they want to manage the the message and, Republicans take their healthy bit of skepticism, go to the extreme. Um, so what does this end up looking like politically, like electorally? I guess like the last several election cycles where like Republicans are like uh, fired up and, and angry and all kinds of populist rage about institutions protecting their political enemies. And Democrats are sort of uh, have some self-righteousness. Uh, about, uh, you know, they're on, they're, they're the ones fighting uh, against and holding the line against these conspiratorial Republicans. The bases come out and, you know, I guess independents sort of just kind of wait to see who seems less crazy. I, that, that seems to be what, what's going on here, like big picture wise. I don't know how it shakes out, you know, in the, in the, in the little bit. 
I think I think that's right. You know, I think if you if you look at the way that like Fox has covered this, they start with this assumption that Hunter Biden is guilty of all of these things that we know and a lot of things that we don't know, and that the Justice Department is in cahoots and and working to protect him. Um, and I think you know, let's assume for the sake of argument, Sarah, that you're right, and that this is much more attributable to to incompetence than than malice or corruption it still can feed perceptions of corruption right i mean it still doesn't does. it still doesn't no look question. good this really doesn't look good yeah and and i i leave open the possibility that we could learn more that makes this feel more like corruption than than incompetence i mean i'm i'm, I'm open to that possibility but if you look at the republican electorate you have sort of the fox crowd the the base of the republican party who says look this is gross this has been happening for a long time. He's being protected. Look at all the things that are happening in plain sight and the guys, you know, getting these slaps on the wrist. I think beyond that, there's also this sense, and this is probably where, you know, squishier Republicans, independents, and, and some Democrats end up. Look, this is bad. This this is corrupt, but this is sort of how Washington operates. And this is, you know, this is unfortunate. In, in its own way, that sort of feeds Trump's narrative about the swamp as well. I don't think it ultimately, you know, helps him that much or helps Republicans that much. Um, but it, it does feed this broader sense that just Washington is a mess. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, I want to move on to 2024. Ron DeSantis this week gave an interesting interview where he was asked whether he would consider picking Robert Kennedy Jr. as his running mate. Robert Kennedy Jr. is running in the Democratic primary against Joe Biden. Ron DeSantis answered, no, because 
even though I'm, you know, down with him on the medical stuff, you know, there's like 70% of issues we probably don't agree on. And you don't pick a vice president who you disagree on with that much better to sick him on the FDA or something like that. So not totally clear, but it seemed to be heavily implied, Mike, that Ron DeSantis was saying that he would consider appointing RFK Jr. to head the FDA. Few interesting things there. One, as a competitor, fellow candidate Mike Pence pointed out, why in the world would you pick that guy to run the FDA if you're a conservative Republican who has all these other issues that you might care about, like, let's say, mifeprestone, an abortion-inducing drug that you're not going to agree on with RFK Jr.? Um, but even setting aside the Mike Pence point, the DeSantis team has tried to walk a line when it comes to vaccines. They're pro-vaccine, but vaccines skeptical. This seemed to like just jump on, like dive from the diving board into the water with the RFK Jr. vaccine side of things, which feels very online to me and not actually uh, particularly representative of where most people are in the country when it comes to the COVID vaccine at this point. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very, it's a great example of the DeSantis team and DeSantis himself apparently being not just very online, but sort of captured by um, what used to be kind of considered like talk radio world. Uh, this was an interview with um, with Clay Travis, uh, who is uh, the founder of Outkick the Coverage. And my neighbor. And, all, and, your, and David's neighbor, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is, I mean, this is like what, uh, what, you know, what used to be called like boob bait for Bubba. Like this is the sort of thing where you, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan used that term, which is great. Um, it is designed to be sort of entertaining and, uh, uh, and sort of outlandish and what a sort of, what a presidential candidate whose, whose plan is to win the nomination and the general election does with that question is say the first part right? Say, you know, uh, I, I like his skepticism of vaccines. I guess he feels like he has to say that. I don't personally share that skepticism, uh, but maybe that's what DeSantis has to say. And then pivot to talk about what he would really like to talk about, which is we really need to change this, that, or the other in FDA, CDC, HHS, um, leave RFK Jr. behind. Because while RFK Jr. is, you know, winning uh, the hearts and, and minds of the Clay Travis's of the world. You're right, Sarah. It doesn't really speak to like the actual larger, not just the general election population, but even the Republican voting block that DeSantis, you know, theoretically should be going for, which is like the not very online, the not listening to talk radio uh, every single day, but who still vote Republican and who still vote in Republican primaries. Um, and instead, I mean, he sort of, he, he gives, it's weird for, for, for a guy who's so sort of savvy about, I'm not giving in to the mainstream media's questions on this, that, or the other. When it comes to sort of right-wing uh, talk radio, online media, which is media, which is in some ways mainstream media for, for the right, um, he, he, he sort of plays the game in a way that doesn't strike me as very savvy or very aware of his own position right now within the primary, which is he's the only guy left at the moment to really have that non-Trump position. And yet he sort of can't help himself um, 
He can't help himself. It's in many ways, it's the same group of people who gave him all of the praise and attention while he was, you know, when he was governor during COVID. Um, but in the end, they were always going to go to Papa Trump. David, um, this this vignette feels more like a metaphor for some of the problems the DeSantis campaign is having right now. They've sort of announced another reset. So the initial reset was we're going to engage with the mainstream media. We're going to do more interviews. You're going to see Ron DeSantis everywhere from now on. He starts with a CNN interview with Jake Tapper. Okay. But they were very clear that it was only a messaging reset or really even a medium reset, not a messaging reset. A comms reset, right? Yeah. Um, But now we're in like reset number two, which is a staffing reset. He's let go about a third of his staff. and some of those are the very online people, you know, who are sort of catering Twitter, et cetera, social media with like weird, very, very niche online stuff. W- what say you about Second Reset? It's feeling like a lot of resets to me. You know, when I was watching that vignette, it was like you had the DeSantis campaign in a nutshell right there, which really was, you're looking at an- It was sort of like an equivalent of the Kamala Harris campaign from 2020, where you would watch them do something and be like, what? Who? Yes. <laughs> the only, you would think see things from Kamala Harris and you would think the only way this makes sense is if you really are immersed in Twitter. If you're really immersed in Twitter, you can absolutely see why she did these things. And that's the same thing with, with DeSantis. I mean, it's interesting, Rich Lowry has a piece out today where he's talking about some of DeSantis's problems and he's saying, well, you know, DeSantis isn't super online because he's not, doesn't really have a presence on some of these other social media platforms where a lot of Republicans are. And that's correct. I mean, it really is when we say two online, we really are talking about a quite specific Twitter subculture. And what he reminds me of, there, have, have y'all heard the phrase or the, the acronym Netter, N-E-T-T-R? It's a very online thing that, which now is telling me I'm too online myself. I could have told you that before. Uh, okay, should I stop talking? But anyway, what, <laughs> what it means is no enemies to the right. Oh, oh. and so he, I, I have heard that. Yeah, so he's sort of it's become an acronym: N E T T R Netter. So it's the kind of thing where he's like, no candidates to the right. So his, his position is that he is staking out the populist reactionary version of the Ted Cruz 2016 campaign, which the Ted Cruz campaign is, Trump's not the real conservative, I'm the real conservative. DeSantis is like, Trump's not the real conspiracy theorist, I'm the real conspiracy, or Trump's not the real anti-vaxxer, I'm the real anti-vaxxer. A lot of it is just the constant churning of, right-wing Twitter talking points and issues and outrages. And you can really see this in that he actually governs Florida increasingly along these lines as well. When he starts openly speculating, for example, that Florida might look into a shareholder derivative lawsuit, derivative lawsuit over dot, 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 Bud Light, <laughs> then you're thinking, please close the app or have the people around you close the app because this is just at some point getting beyond parody. And I think that's where we are. He's completely convinced himself that 
the only avenue to attacking Trump is getting to Trump's right on a lot of these niche issues. And then once he's there, you can't dislodge him when the reality is he's completely sort of misjudged the core of why people are with Trump, which is only partly because of the, well, he fights more effectively than anybody else, or he's the fighter, he's the fighter, he's the fighter. There is an entire social component to it. There's an entire cultural component to this Trump support that he's just completely missing. And he's running the Ted Cruz playbook, except not as the true Tea Party conservative, but he's running the Ted Cruz playbook as I'm Trumpier than Trump. And how do you define that through these really niche online wars that I'm going to attach legislation to, or I'm even going to wrap not both arms, but one arm around RFK Jr. about. And he's just not getting why he's floundering. But at the same time, I feel like he's a little bit trapped because he's created this sort of troll army, or he's attracted this kind of troll army to him. And they have zero patience, zero for any softening, for any weakening, for any moderation. And so he, I think he's kind of trapped by his own constituency in some ways. David, you described him as floundering. And I just now want to spend 20 minutes talking about whether he's floundering or foundering. Oh, um, but yeah, this is one of my th big things. <laughs> it's one of I my knew things. Steve would be into this. <laughs> um, but you know what? We're not going to do that. We'll let people in the comments section discuss their preferred term. Um, they do have different meanings, but often interchangeable in the context that you're using them. Steve. Let's talk about some of the other candidates, though. We now have the governor of North Dakota making the debate stage, which is surprising to me. I'll admit it. I did not think that this whole give us a dollar and we'll send you a $20, you know, Apple gift card or whatever was going to be effective. He has a name, Sarah. It's Doug Burgum. Thank you. I always remember it. <laughs> I always want to memory. call him Norman Borlaug, to be honest, like. <laughs> That's how well his name idea is going, is that someone who does this for a living can't quite be sure that they've got it right. Uh, all right, so he makes the debate stage, Steve, and I don't know his name, so I'm assuming most people don't either. You have Tim Scott certainly getting some good coverage about how Republican donors especially are giving him another look. You have Nikki Haley uh, pulling ahead in a few polls. And then, of course, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at this point start mentioning Vivek Ramaswamy as someone who is showing strength in polls beyond expectations, at least. Yeah, I think the Republican field is a mess. Uh, all of those things that you said are true. None of them seem to be to, to be mattering at this point. The, the only person who's shown, I would argue, real um, upward movement in polls pretty consistently lately is Ramaswamy who is basically, I mean, he's not basically, he is saying, I will be Trumpier than Trump. I will go further. We had a, a dispatch politics uh, report on this last week based on uh, discussion with him, who told our reporters and others, Trump didn't go far enough. I will go further than Trump on these America first issues. He's the one who's doing better. So which for a lot of people makes sense, right? They like the policies and they think Trump's a flawed vehicle for them. I think I think that's right. And Ramaswamy, even though I think if you look at his message consistently, it's a pretty dark message, has the ability to be somewhat optimistic about this. He he takes the, the Trump message 
um, takes it further and somehow recasts it as slightly more optimistic. So you can see where that might appeal to people. But if you look, let's just take a step back. Look at the Republican primary process from the beginning to where we are today. All of those people that you mentioned, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, um, Doug Burgum, uh, other, Ron DeSantis, certainly I thought at this point that there would be a significant challenge to Donald Trump, that somebody would have run a campaign that would allow him or her to be a direct competitor to Donald Trump. That has not happened. I mean, Trump is dominating. He's two, three, four times the next closest Republican in virtually all of the polling. And one candidate who's showed somewhat consistent upward movement is the guy who says he's going to be Trumpier than Trump. So it may be the case that Tim Scott has a moment. I sort of always thought Tim Scott would have a moment. He's a tremendously appealing person, tremendously appealing character. Uh, I think he has, you know, he is somebody who's put his optimism forward. He's campaigning on optimism. Um, but he hasn't separated himself from the field. He hasn't become the alternative to Trump in part because he's afraid of criticizing Trump. He doesn't want to criticize Trump. Nikki Haley will eventually tiptoe out and offer something that, you know, if you squint hard enough from a long enough distance can feel a little bit like it might be getting towards Trump criticism. Republicans are not running against Donald Trump. They don't want to. They're not really taking him on. You've had moments. You've had Ron DeSantis. Mike Pence has probably been the most forward-leaning in some regard. But in terms of creating distinctions, they've just failed. And this is, this is I think, in, in some ways, Ron DeSantis' biggest failing and where he's been uh, you know, a, a real flop of a candidate. You can imagine the campaign that Ron DeSantis could have run. He had momentum. He had money. He was billed from the outset as the alternative to Trump. He was billed as, as the guy who could be Trumpy on some policies, but not the kind of crazy, give us the kind of crazy conspiracy stuff that Trump has given us and not be the online freak that Donald Trump has been for eight years. And instead, DeSantis leans into the stuff about Trump that people don't like broadly speaking, but might win him a Republican, might win him some votes among the, the basiest base of Republicans. In almost, you know, his own record as governor has become almost an afterthought. It's like, he'll say things like, yeah, I'd consider RFK as FDA uh, or CDC head. And oh, by the way, I was a pretty good governor. Like, how do you not lead with the effectiveness as a governor? Um, I, I the, the RFK comments for me are as close to disqualifying as anything. RFK is a guy who's been a left-wing freak on vaccines for decades, decades. And not only did DeSantis say that he might consider him to, to run the FDA, so sick to, to, to use him to stick him on the FDA and the CDC, he, before he did that, he said, there are issues where we don't agree but man, he's right on the medical stuff. That's bonkers. Like that's insane. And by the way, medical stuff wasn't limited to the COVID vaccine. No. I mean, the stuff that RFK Jr. says about all vaccines, no. vaccines, causal link to autism, uh, you know, cell phones and brain cancer. Like he has lots of thoughts about medicine. 
It's so bonkers. bonkers. I think people don't really appreciate how crazy he is, like, and how crazy he's been for for as as long as he's been. But here's a, here's a point. Final point. This is where I'll, I'll end. Ron Santos has given Clay Travis interviews before, right? Clay Travis has a popular nationally syndicated talk radio. He's now um, he's taking his outkick um, stuff to to Fox. And he's popular with the super online right. It's, it's not surprising that if you go on and you talk to people like that, or like we've said before, Ron DeSantis giving one of his first hangout interviews to Benny Johnson, also a, an extremely online conspiracy right winger. Of course, Clay Travis is going to push him in that direction. Clay Travis is the one who said we'd have a couple hundred deaths from COVID. He wants to be vindicated. He wants to, to, he wants to go back and revisit the things that he said and have somebody tell him he's right. So they've moved. For, he was wrong about COVID. He's wrong as he could possibly be about actual COVID and its effects. So then they shift to the COVID backs and they're looking for things that are not provably false so that they can float more conspiracy theories. It's a choice to go and visit those people. It's a choice to spend time with those people. Of course, you're going to be driven there. Now, a good candidate and somebody who actually believes things and has principles would say, oh, my God. RFK Jr., are you crazy? Have you not paid attention to what he said over the past 30 years? Of course I wouldn't consider him for anything. But that's not Ron DeSantis. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right, David. Will you set us up on aliens, please? What happened this week? Well, <laughs> there was a hearing. Speaking of conspiracy, this is a great transition. Man, we hate conspiracy theories. Now let's do a serious segment on UFOs and aliens. We hate conspiracy <laughs> theories unless they're true. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell who wanted to do this segment and who didn't want to do this segment. Yeah, there was a hearing. U.S. House of Representatives over the unidentified aerial phenomenon, phenomenon, UAPs which I'm still not used to UAPs over UFOs. Is it because phenomenon starts with a P but sounds like an F and it's just throwing you off? No, I just grew up with the UFO <laughs> thing. Like, is it- well, well, it's so funny because the New York Times news coverage of this basically uses UFO and says uh, UAPs as the federal government calls it, which I really appreciate, yes. actually. It's like, we all know what, what they're called. It's UFOs. No, but it's, it's, look, this is part of the marketing campaign for crazy people who believe in this stuff to rename it, right? I mean, this is like, let's make it more acceptable. Now we have UAPs instead of UFOs. 
Well, it's the rebranding <laughs> to try to reach skeptics like you, Steve. What do we have to do? So there was a hearing in the House of Representatives. Various witnesses were brought in of various degrees of credibility, in my view, um, who were talking about encounters with UAPs. Now, I put this in a couple of, let, let's put this in three buckets as a shout out to uh, Sarah and advisory opinions. So bucket number one, we'll talk about pilot slash airplane encounters, which are the most interesting to me. So these are when you have F-18 pilots or airline pilots who have encountered things in the air that have been recorded. In other words, it's not just their eyeball testimony. They have been recorded on video cameras, on the various sensors that American aircraft have, and have behaved in utterly inexplicable ways. And this is something that is not new. The Times, in fact, covered this back 2017, 2018 with some testimony, for example, from F-18 pilots. That is really, really compelling. Then you have this other kind of testimony, which is, hey, I'm from the deep state and I've got stuff to share with you. Okay, uh, that's the, sort of the second bucket. It's not as incredible as the bucket three, which is I'm not from the government, but I've got insights into the government that I'm here to share with you, which is really not so much the, the focus of the hearing. But it was more buckets one, buckets one and two. So okay, but where does the transcript? There's the part where uh, <laughs> a congresswoman asks, "Did you recover anything from the crash site?" And he says, "Yes." And she says, "Was it human?" And he says, "No, it was non-human biologics." Now, I just want to like, can I just tell you my own thoughts on some of this? Which is, um, I think everyone was like, "Ah, non-human biologics." Now we're in Independence Day territory. Couldn't non-human biologics like literally be anything else <laughs> like bacteria? Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> or octopus. Yeah, like I have a whole theory that if there's, I, I think numerically the likelihood of there being life on some other planet is incredibly high. But then you have to ask yourself, what is that life most likely like? We are sort of an evolutionary dead end. Look, our birth rates are going down. There's all Speak sorts of reasons <laughs> your birth rate isn't going down. Um, <laughs> Mike's doing his part. I'll grant you. He's a little bit above replacement value in his household. <laughs> but, but that, you know, they're actually far more likely to just be a bunch of amoebas running around or maybe octopus. They're very smart, but solo creatures. They can't really take over much because they refuse to work together and don't live very long. Um, and then there's, of course, the study that says that <laughs> things keep evolving into crabs. And so that crabs are actually maybe the most evolutionarily <laughs> advanced because five different times things have evolved separately into crabs. Can I, so can that I for instance, a right hermit crab and a king crab. No, I, no, you cannot. I, I, I have no. to be, stay no, out of this. This is, this stay is so great. Out. Look, no, we don't this need is so you great. Here. This is like, this is like talking about being, being in our, our own worlds. Do you, Sarah, do you realize you just introduced that by saying, and then of course there's the study about how everything evolves evolves into crabs. Like this is common knowledge, and every single person, you know, like adults are talking, Steve. Adults are talking. I don't know what the equivalent would be. You know, of course, of course, there's the study that everything evolves into crabs. Of course, and you know, I was just talking about this yesterday with my friends at the bar. <laughs> 
we we have had extended conversations about the crab people, Steve. This is this is <laughs> crab people. This is new. Crab this is not new people. stuff. All right. So anyway, the non-biologics. What bucket is that going into, David? That is going into bucket maximum skepticism because okay. anything that depends on large numbers of people across multiple generation American generations of government employment maintaining absolute total radio silence about the biggest story in the history of the world, color me skeptical. If it is, I, I'm an F-18 pilot and I'm coming out immediately to say, my sensors picked up something that I can't explain. That is much more how government works compared to, oh, we have 17,000 people since 1951 who've been sworn to absolute secrecy and kept that secret. But see, David, here's the problem. If if you're telling me that my belief in aliens needs to be in bucket one, then I'm out because bucket one is the most explainable bucket that there's, you know, basically, uh, you know, laser weapon technology being tested that these guys haven't seen, aren't privy to, whatever it may be. Sensor so failure. Like, yeah, all sorts of, there's so many explanations for why an F-18 pilot and especially a commercial pilot is going to see something in the air that they can't explain that has absolutely nothing like the opposite of aliens to do with. I, yeah. I don't think that anyone would say much to my profound disappointment that we have established the existence of aliens. I'm saying of all of the buckets, what is m most interesting to me is not the, I'm coming forward the first member of the deep state ever to blow the lid off of the vast labyrinthine deception operation that has encompassed 40, 50, 60, 80 years of American history involving hundreds, if not thousands of federal employees, and not a peep of, peep of it has emerged until now, versus in the way things we've seen things actually work in real time, which is with a lag of a year or two or three, or maybe even immediately, people see something really unexplained and say, I saw something really unexplained, and then come forward. That's that's so much more interesting to me. And, you know, we did have this UAP report that came out and I wrote a Sunday newsletter about it. Like, what are the religious implications? And I think I said when the aliens arrive, not if. Um, but, you know, there were elements of the report that were basically like, we can't at this moment explain what the sensors recorded, which is not the same thing as saying, and therefore aliens. It's just saying we cannot with our present technology, explain what we recorded. And that, to me, is very interesting. Let's look at that. I'm fascinated by that. Mike? <laughs> is there a question? To look at resignation nope. on Sarah's face. Look, you're the person who says we're all going to be crabs. Give me this. <laughs> like, give me, give me some intrigue about aliens. There's a great Kurt Vonnegut book called Galapagos that I just am going to throw out there that I highly recommend. It's a short read. It's fictional. Um, and let's just say we don't all evolve into crabs, but it's not that far off. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like if we're going to, if we're going to talk about alien science fiction, uh, I would much prefer uh, uh, a world or a universe that looks like what C.S. Lewis describes in his space trilogy, which is, like basically, you know, like every, every planet has like aliens that are some 
you know, manifestation of angels. I don't know. I mean, like, I just find it all so, uh, I I guess I'm just a skeptic. Like, I... Do you... Here are the two questions. Okay. All right. What's my question? Do you think that there are life on other planets? I think it's possible. Yes. Okay. Two, do you believe that any species able to know and harness the science to jump galaxies will exterminate itself before it has the chance to do so? I have... I have not given that question thought. I just, I do not think that there is, the, the likelihood is not zero, but is near zero, that there is another form of life that has evolved to, to where yeah, we but are. but near zero times the billions upon trillions upon quadrillions of stars that are out sure. there. Yes, not to I'm mention hedging. the planets that are around there. Like near zero is a lot of intelligent life out there then. Yeah, I suppose. I, I suppose that's how I the mean, math works. Yeah, I know that's how the math works. Uh, I just uh, give me some evidence. Give me some real evidence, not some sort of evidence that is being filtered through, you know, a, a guy who's calling himself a whistleblower and interpreting, you know, information that's been filtered through thousands of different. I mean, like it just. All right. It, when the aliens come, you guys aren't invited to the tea parties. Yeah. No. Up. Okay. Fine. Can I, can I just Steve? interject right Wait, here? Wait, no, real Steve fast? needs to answer no, the two Steve, questions. Steve has had his say. So the. <laughs> no, I've got more say. I've got more say. I need to put, I, I need to make sure that you guys, that people understand that you guys fit squarely into the RFK Jr. category of, of aliens. Uh, see, see, this, we don't need this. I just said that we're amoebas on other planets. I think I'm actually like on the side of science here. What does the crab study say? studies grab studies <laughs> but let's be fair here because producer adam sent me a note saying we need to do we do need to give some background to the whistleblower so this guy david grush so this is not like some guy who was on a history channel documentary about mermaids and has uh, has branched out into ufos so this guy is a air force officer he was part of the National Reconnaissance Office representative, or he was the National Reconnaissance Office representative to the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. So he actually was a person who was involved in the, he, his role with, one of his roles within the government was looking at the UAP phenomenon. And so this is why a lot of people have paid a heck of a lot more attention to his public claims because he actually had a role. In other words, he's the kind of person that I, I would say, hey, if all of this was real, this is exactly the kind of person we would have heard from in 1958 or whenever. But David, in order to prosecute him for perjuring himself by giving false testimony under oath, you'd have to prove that he knew his testimony was false. Right. Like he's not getting charged no. with perjury. No, no, I know, I know. You can't prove that there aren't aliens. And we certainly can't prove he knows there aren't well, aliens. Of course. That's why he's in bucket two for me and he's not in bucket one, which is with tech, with sensors, with gun camera footage that you can see, you can see it, uh, the gun camera footage. We are showing you unidentified aerial phenomenon that we cannot explain. That to me is a lot more interesting than bucket number two. This guy, and certainly more interesting than bucket number three, which is History Channel Mermaid Territory. All right, Steve, I mostly did this segment just so we could prove that we could do it with you on here. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did it. You were gone. We had that off the rails. I have yeah. a story. Yeah. I mean, this is not new. Certainly, um, you've had people uh, thinking about UFOs, wondering about UFOs. 
and asking the U.S. government questions about uh, its UFO program for a long time. In 2000, uh, three days after George W. Bush picked Dick Cheney to be his running mate, they were doing an event in Springdale, Arkansas. And this UFO enthusiast named Charles Huffer came up to Bush and said, half the country thinks UFOs are real. Would you finally tell us what the hell is going on? And Bush, as you can imagine, um, wanted to have some fun with this guy. So he's standing next to Cheney and sort of motions in Cheney's direction and says, this man knows. He was Secretary of Defense. So he's it's sort of a put on. Bush is standing next to Cheney a few minutes later and Hopper comes around again. And Bush gestures to Cheney and says that Cheney now has a new assignment if they're elected. And Bush says, it'll be the first thing he will do. He'll get right on it. So this is all like a big joke, right? But in the UFO community, they take Bush literally. And they think that now Cheney has been given the assignment to go and look at, at this thing. And in the UFO community, they began calling this Bush's promise to go and really get to the bottom of what was happening in UFOs and ufologists. So Cheney is, they win the election, Cheney's uh, in office, and he does an interview on the Diane Rehm show in Washington in the spring of 2011. And they get a call. It's a call-in show. They get a call. And uh, this guy calls in and says, and I'm reading his, his quote here, since the statement made by George, w., George Bush last July, there's a vicious rumor circulating in the UFO community that you've been read into the UFO program. So my question to you is, in any of your government jobs, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? And if you have, when was it and what were you told? And Cheney, Cheney, you know, has a pretty good sense of humor about such matters, responds to the guy, well, if I had been briefed on it, I'm sure it was classified. And I can't talk about it, <laughs> which, of course, <laughs> leads to this explosion of new, yes! <laughs> new stories. Oh, Cheney knows, but he's, uh, this, is, this goes on and on and on. Um, Cheney later denied that he had been part of those briefings. But look, that's like going to be literally true, because at that point, they like, absolutely, there are people who are getting briefed on, hey, our F-18 pilot saw this. We think it is probably the Chinese testing some new technology, but we don't know what it is yet. So we're trying to figure that out. Technically, then you've been briefed on an unidentified aerial phenomena and it was classified. And look, you know, in that exchange, Dick Cheney didn't do anything to say that they don't exist. Right. So all I know is that I think advisory opinions will be vindicated here eventually. And that is when the aliens arrive, they will be crab people. Can you explain to people what advisory opinions is? <laughs> when the aliens arrive, they will be crab people and that will square the circle. I think that's right. Yeah. So I'll just leave you. Kurt, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut's right. Galapagos is a great book. I highly recommend it. I think it actually, um, honestly, I could have just done a reading from it for the last 20 minutes and we would have been better off. I'll let y'all decide whether we did it not worth your time today. Uh, listeners, and um, I, I think, think we just did it. I'm leaving it to them to decide, Steve. Leaving it to them. Maybe we skipped it. Maybe we didn't. We do have something important to talk about at the end. Um, 
if we don't do a formal not worth your time. We're at the end, to be clear. Correct. <laughs> um, and, and unfortunately, the thing that we have to talk about is big and exciting um, and new. And we've probably lost everybody listening uh, through that last segment. <laughs> but I want to talk to you guys about Sarah, then, then all the network combined. Um, I want to talk uh, specifically to Sarah and, and Mike about this announcement that we are making this week about a new project that, that you all are helming. And allow me to introduce it a little bit because I can uh, be excited and enthusiastic and brag about both of you in ways that, uh, that you can't, even if you're being your most immodest. Um, so we are launching a new newsletter and a new project. It's called The Collision, and it will cover, teamed up by Mike and on a team uh, featuring Mike and Sarah, this collision between law and politics that we're seeing in the 2024 presidential election, which we think is truly unprecedented. Unprecedented is a word that's been thrown a lot around a lot over the past eight years, and a lot of the things it's been used to describe have not, in fact, been unprecedented. This is unprecedented. We have a leading Republican candidate, former president, um, under indictment in real legal jeopardy in a couple of different ways. And in order to understand what's happening in the presidential race and to understand in our politics, not just at the presidential level, but as it relates to political parties, as it relates to other Republican candidates, I think it's going to be absolutely crucial that we understand what's going on in the legal realm um, as we as we talk about these things. So Sarah and Mike have uh, come together to work on this new project called The Collision. And maybe, Sarah, I'll start with you. Can you give people a sense of, of how you're thinking about it and what you want to do with it? First of all, Mike and I have known each other for a long time now. This is really a coming together reunion situation for us. So that part, I think we're just kind of pumped about because that'll be fun. Uh, we were on opposite sides of the mic, if you will, <laughs> for the last 10, 15 years, however long it's been. Um, but that part's fun. But I think we see each other's skill sets as um, uh, highly simpatico, right? Like Mike does all of this great reporting. He's a political veteran when it comes to all of these races. Um, and I'll bring the legal side and the operative side. And we're going to really focus on how the legal stuff going on, legal stuff is the technical term, how the legal stuff is going to fit into this political race heading into 2024, because there's no way that it doesn't. And yet you sort of need some expertise to navigate your way around all of this stuff. And our hope is that we'll be able to combine the political expertise with the legal expertise, explain the law side, and that will help you understand the political side. Yeah. And I would just say, as we were talking about this, as we were kicking this, kicking this around a little bit, it occurred to me that we have in, in both of you, like we are truly uniquely positioned. I mean, Sarah, you know, you have worked at the highest levels of the Department of Justice. You understand how these investigations work, both in terms of sort of technically how they unfold, what we can expect, what goes into an indictment, what what a target letter means, all, all of these things that for non-lawyers feel like legal jargon and you know and things that we don't understand right away. And you've also worked at sort of the highest levels of, of presidential campaigns. Um, so you've seen 
how the campaign dynamics, the internal dynamics, how how you think about messaging this. And Mike, uh, Sarah, as you pointed out, you've been working covering these things and Republican politics uh, specifically for more than a decade on Capitol Hill, you know, out covering the campaigns, traveling around with them, covered the the Trump White House back at the Weekly Standard. And we think this is just where we really are uniquely positioned to cover this in a way that you can't, you're not going to be able to get elsewhere. I mean, we talk about this internally and, you know, there are some areas where we're not going to be able to compete with the New York Times, right? I mean, the dispatch has 30 staffers. The New York Times sometimes has 20 people working on an individual story and in-depth investigation. But in something like this, we have in both of you, I think, depth of, of experience and understanding that will allow us to really provide uh, editorial an editorial product that other people can't. Um, and, uh, and Mike, I guess I'd ask you what you're looking forward to. What do you think we, what do you think this will look like? How do you think this will, will unfold? Well, uh, I am a reporter and so I expect, and I think we're already seeing that in the first, uh, first edition of this, uh, newsletter, which is part of the product, uh, some reporting on, um, on, this collision, this intersection between politics and the law. And sometimes that, um, you know, means talking with operatives, uh, talking with campaigns, talking with people who are, uh, whose job it is, uh, or whose expertise is to navigate these moments and kind of pushing them on pushing these sources. I have, uh, in the Republican party and then the democratic party, um, to kind of, address or uh, think through the unprecedented nature of, of this. So for instance, um, I talked with a few democratic operatives uh, this week about, you know, kind of pose this hypothetical. We've got uh, a likelihood that Donald Trump is going to be on trial starting in May of 2024, right in the middle of uh, a presidential election year. Right as the primaries are wrapping up, if he wins the nomination, he's going to be on the road to the convention, to accepting the nomination there. The general election will essentially have started around this same time. So I asked all these Democrats, what does that look like? How do you think through that? Um, I mean, I, I like to think that, you know, I've seen enough of these campaigns to kind of know how, uh, how campaign operatives, how candidates, um, sort of react to events. And now we've got this sort of heightened, extraordinary moment. So it won't simply be a moment where uh, a news event happens and a presidential candidate takes advantage of it. Now the news moment will be the presidential candidate himself, Donald Trump. We can, I can foresee daily rallies outside of the courthouse in Florida, for instance. <laughs> um, what does that look like? How do you program, uh, counter-program that if you're a Democrat? What do you do to take advantage of that if you're the Donald Trump campaign? Um, I mean, just these are questions I want to be asking. I want to be learning. Um, I want to break news on. Uh, and so I think this is uh, something that where we can really uh, add value to that. And then and then you add in to the mix um, Sarah's own expertise, um, you know, there are going to be questions for campaigns that campaign reporters at other outlets aren't going to think to ask that we will, because we, we also have 
um, this this knowledge of the ins and outs of um, how trials work uh, or how uh, a DOJ uh, investigation works, um, and in the same way that um, you know very very uh, talented uh, justice reporters don't always consider the politics uh, of of things. So I think we really come together with sort of a unique mix here. Um, and, uh, and and we can um, sort of punch above our weight in, in that sense. And if that sounds like something you'd like, you'd like to get into your inbox, go to thedispatch.com, check out the newsletter list. It's called The Collision. You can also look at all the other newsletters maybe you're missing out on. But I mean, really, The Collision. It's called The Collision, thedispatch.com. You can sign up there. With that, thank you for joining us on this very special and very weird edition of the Dispatch Podcast. We'll uh, we'll see in the comments section. We'll see whether we're all crabs, we're all heading to crabs, or floundering or foundering wins out in the comments. Thanks. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.